Hi, it's Alex, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Youth in Education podcast series, CFEY Live. In this series, we're exploring the most interesting aspects of research that we are carrying out at the Centre for Education and Youth, and providing you with insights from the practitioners and young people that we work with. Thanks for listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Hi, I'm Vanessa. Welcome to this episode of the CFE White Life podcast series. In this episode, I'm joined by my colleague Billy and Hannah Asquith, CEO of Youth Concern, an independent charity that supports vulnerable 13 to 25 year olds across Ellsbury Vale in Buckinghamshire. In this episode, we explore some of the key findings that came out of our research for the Rothschild Foundation, looking at the experiences and transitions of young people in Buckinghamshire. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. So Hannah and Billy, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Hello. Hiya, it's good to be with you both. Um, Hannah, do you actually mind kicking us off by telling us a little bit about Youth Concern and the really interesting work you're doing in your corner of Buckinghamshire? Not at all. So Youth Concern is an independent charity. We support any 13 to 25-year-old across Aylesbury Vale. So that's Aylesbury Town itself and the villages. But we specialise in supporting vulnerable young people. And what we mean by that is those in, in need of protection or, or generally in need. So that could include young people who are known to health and or social care services. It could be young people who aren't in education, employment or training. Could be looked after children. Uh, young people who are financially vulnerable or have EHCPs or have emerging or diagnosed mental health needs, are homeless or vulnerably housed young carers, um, young people who are affected by domestic or sexual violence, young people with problems with substance misuse. So I think just in that list, you can see that we want to be here for any 13 to 25 year old. We're a non-judgmental space, a listening ear, a safe place. And so young people who are falling through the cracks of other services choose to engage with us. That's great. Thank you, Hannah. I remember saying this to you already when we spoke before, but for, for our listeners, the, the Youth Concern website is really amazing. Um, They've got really cool illustrations, um, which gives you kind of a sense of some of the work that they're doing with um, young people across the areas that they work in. So it's really great to have you today, Hannah. Um, Billy, uh, you worked with Hannah on some research for the Rothschild Foundation. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the research and kind of the part that you've concerned played in the research? Sure thing. And also just to say, um, Hannah's probably far too modest to mention, but their newsletter is also fantastic. So everyone should uh, should sign up to that too. Um, yeah, so our work for the Rothschild Foundation. Well, the um, the Rothschild Foundation are a, are a charity set up to support um, arts and heritage, uh, the environment and social welfare. So they do that in a variety of ways, including grant making, uh, where they have a particular interest in supporting young people in Buckinghamshire, given that that's where the uh, the foundation is based. Uh, so they wanted CFEY to help them uh, better understand the challenges facing marginalised 16 to 25 year olds in Bucks. So those making that uh, all important transition to adulthood. They wanted to under- understand uh, the challenges that these young people faced, the support that they're currently receiving and any gaps in provision that might be addressed uh, through the organisation's grant making. So there were a few different phases to this research, which I'll just quickly run through now. 
Um, to begin with, we conducted a documentary review, which identified a range of initiatives that the foundation have funded over the years, uh, making un- uh, sure that we understood their current strategy and approach to grant making. Uh, we found that their support is really varied, spanning a whole range of themes, uh, with uh, investment in work particularly around uh, transitions. So thinking post-16 and 18 decision-making around employment, education, training pathways, that sort of thing. And, and here, like uh, Youth Concern, they pay particular attention to groups that are often on the margins of support, such as those from economically disadvantaged backgrounds and those with special educational needs and disabilities. Uh, so the main chunk of the work could be kind of divided into two phases. The first saw us draw on a range of data to produce an interactive data map covering a whole range of themes, including unemployment, HE participation rates, ONS data on house prices, journey times by public transport to FE colleges, employment centres, all sorts, to better understand how opportunities are distributed and distributed unevenly across Bucks. So it was a really interesting exercise because at the aggregate level, people often think of Bucks in a certain way. They might think that it's a sort of favourable county for young people to grow up in. And it certainly sort of has that reputation when you speak to people casually about the project. But our mapping showed, and, and Hannah will tell you, that young people in particular neighbourhoods within Bucks faced a whole uh, sort of host of, of challenges. To support this uh, mapping, we conducted a literature and policy review, which kind of gave us uh, further insight into these themes around unemployment and housing, which are and, and other themes, which are challenges for young people across the county, but they manifest particularly in a particular way in Bucks. Um, so then the second step, which is where Hannah came in, um, which is the, uh, the consultation. So we spoke with those supporting young people and young people themselves across a whole range of settings in Bucks. So not just mainstream schools, but PRUs, specialists, SEND providers, youth clubs and others, just to get under the skin of some of the uh, issues identified in our report. Uh, and the report itself culminated in a series of recommendations for the Rothschild Foundation uh, on how to improve their grant making. But I also like to think that the recommendations should have some implications for schools, VCS organisations, Box Council and others working to support young people. The research sounds really interesting. Um, at CFEY, we're quite keen to do a lot more place-based research. So I feel like this falls quite nicely into, into some of the work that we're trying to, to do in terms of our research. Also, I think when I, to be honest, thought of Bucking, um, Buckinghamshire, I probably assumed it was quite affluent. Um, and I would have just assumed that was pretty much the case across across the area. So it's quite interesting to hear that there's quite a bit of variation um, and that's something people maybe wouldn't expect in an area like that. Um, particularly, it's not kind of a hotspot that people talk about when they're talking about deprivation um, and young people that are particularly vulnerable. Um, Hannah, I know you were quite involved in this research. I'd love to know kind of what you think were the main um, or most interesting findings, particularly someone working in the area with these young people. Yeah, if I can quote from the report, there's a sentence that says, a consistent theme across the consultation was a feeling of despair at the decline in support services available to 16 to 25 year olds in Bucks. And the report went on to talk about the challenges and the opportunities faced by Buckinghamshire's 16 to 25 year olds as they transition to adulthood. It made it really clear that there's a need for a one-stop shop that would, and I quote, be invaluable in giving young people a place to go, community to participate in, and a means of accessing more specialised services. 
that was a bit of a tongue twister. But this bit of the report alone validated Youth Concerns work and our drop-in centre in central Aylesbury in particular. There are definitely fewer youth services today than there were 10 years ago. But in the light of COVID and the extra needs that young people have now, we're working closely with Buckinghamshire Council and other youth services to increase the provision and the breadth, the quality and the quantity, especially young people who need more specialist services. Hannah, I know you mentioned some of the, the young people that you work with in a little bit about the work that you do, but I'd love to kind of delve into this idea of a one-stop shop a little bit more. What does that look like for youth concern? What kind of work are you doing with young people? And what, what do you imagine this would look like if this was more available to young people? I talk to people from across the voluntary sector and I've just got back from a really fantastic two-day conference um, that was just for CEOs and senior leaders um, in, in the youth sector so that we're a small part of the voluntary sector. We're a passionate group of people. Um, and I don't know if I'm... Uh, if I feel relieved that other charities are facing the same challenges and struggles we are, or whether I feel a bit despondent about that. Um, but one of the biggest challenges is recruitment, that when the youth services, when many of them shut down in the last 10 years, what also happened at that time is youth work as a qualification stopped being recognised as widely. So one of the challenges we're all facing is there are few places that you can go to get a professional qualification. Therefore, we've not got people who've got a heart for young people training in a profession. It doesn't, it's not recognised anymore. And while it's lovely having older members of staff, there's a barrier sometimes. If we've got an 18-year-old who wants to talk about something that's really pressing, they, they're looking at an older colleague and thinking, well, is that person going to get what I'm going through? So that's the challenge that we're all facing. One of the ideas that I think the, the one-stop shop can bring is if a number of services are collaborating and genuinely working together, we could physically people a drop-in centre that was open perhaps from 10 o'clock on a Monday morning until 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. All those individual services don't have to have a staff team big enough for a row to, to manage that, but together we can pull resources. I talk to all my colleagues outside as well, outside Youth Concern, um, about the other challenges they face. We're, we're all looking for funding. The funding available to youth services has been cut. So in some senses, we're all competing for the same pound, whether it's from the local authority, it's from community boards, or it's from grant-making trusts or the lottery. Um, so again, if we collaborate and we put funding bids together, then we hopefully get some more of that money. There's economy of scale when it comes to buying insurance or training or IT provision. I think a one-stop shop could help us solve quite a few of the challenges that we're facing currently in Bucks. Mm, it's such a shame kind of how much youth services have lost when it comes to funding. I remember being younger and um, a youth club near my house was one of the first places I'd done a CV. Um, we used to go on like trips to, you know, those things where you kind of climb on zip wires and God knows where else. And I can't imagine what my childhood maybe would have been like if I didn't have those services available. Even just having, you know, an adult that's there, someone that's slightly impartial, not in your family that you can talk to if you have any problems. Um, yeah, it's a shame that nowadays kind of, as you said, services are having to compete for money uh, because they're all really vital services. And it's a shame that young people aren't able to access those um, to the same degree that maybe they would have um, previously. 
That actually brings me quite nicely to the next question. Um, one of the things that quite that stuck out to me quite a lot during the research was the idea that there was um, a drop-off for young people in terms of support at transition points. Um, Hannah, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what that looks like in practice for the young people that you're working with? Yes, at Youth Concern, we support 13 to 25-year-olds, as I said earlier. So if I look at the research that encompasses two ages of key transitions 16 and 18. We then prepare young people for the third key transition at 25. Which age group does transition impact the most? I think it depends who the young people are. Um, I, I didn't know if it'd be helpful, I hope it will, but I talked to two of our young people who visited our drop-in centre last week. I asked them what transition had meant for them and the personal challenges they'd faced. Um, the first young man I spoke to, I'm going to call Ali, he left his family home when he was 10 and he was fostered. He lived in a foster home until he was 16 and then he moved into private fostering. So he went to live with a family. Between 16 and 18, he lived with two different families. He said his social worker was a constant through that time. And although she introduced him to an aftercare worker, he still found that transition hard. And he said there was no consistency. I realise this is just one young man's experience, but, um, but he had three aftercare workers in two years, some of whom treated him like a child, some of whom treated him like an adult. At 18, he moved into social housing. He's a young man at 18. I, I don't know what you two were doing at 18, but I couldn't have run my own. I couldn't have looked after my own property and, and known about buying sensible food. So at 18, he moved into social housing. And unsurprisingly, he found that transition difficult too. He spent his leaving care grant of £2,000 really quickly. He told me it felt like the biggest, well, it was the biggest sum of money he'd ever had. But he wished he'd had more information at the time about budgeting even somebody helping him work out which mobile phone package was the best value. Um, although he didn't speak highly of the counselling he'd received through CAMS, he did say it was better than the counselling avail available to him after he turned 18, because CAMS is obviously only available until you become an adult. When he then accessed adult mental health support through the NHS, he really struggled. So that was one example of a young man who had a two very difficult transitions at 18 and sorry at 16 and 18 we're working with him now and we're doing our level best to make sure that the next transition at 25 is a good one for him then on the other hand i spoke to a gorgeous young lady who is about to turn 25 um, she's got learning difficulties so there are lots and lots of different services that are available to her but that is all about to change the minute she turns 25 and she's really anxious about that transition. So at Youth Concern, obviously, we've introduced her to a number of suitable adult services and we've, we've visited some of them with her to make those introductions. So we have been a consistent or a, a solid support for her over the last few years. We've taken her to the services that we believe will really look after her and help her flourish. It's really interesting kind of how... I mean, I understand at a certain point the, the support does have to end um, just logistically, but it's really interesting how someone kind of hits 18 and we're like, okay, you're an adult, figure it out. Because, I mean, at 18, I certainly did not have it figured out in the slightest. Um, it's, yeah, really interesting to kind of hear 
two different stories of what how difficult transitions can be and what what it looks like if there isn't kind of a consistent adult supporting you through that transition, which is an, an, quite a difficult period to kind of figure out. Um, you're turning into a, an adult. You've got loads of things going on in terms of maybe school, college, um, working. Um, it sounds like a really difficult period. And yeah, I'd imagine having one consistent adult probably makes it a lot more easy than it, it is to just kind of figure it out or have multiple people helping you at one time, possibly giving you different answers to the same question or even just approaching you slightly different um i don't know about you guys but i've had certain people that i just react really well to because their approach is different to someone else that has really good intentions um and i think sometimes we maybe take for granted how important that i guess like personal touch is um when we're dealing with human beings and how important developing a relationship can be and how disruptive it can be if that relationship just kind of suddenly just disappears um, re- Billy, from the research, what do you think kind of that drop off in transition looks like? I know you spoke to quite a few people working in Bucks um, that work with young people within those transition periods. Yes, I think Hannah's reflections are really interesting because you're capturing the fact that transitions aren't just sort of post 16 movements or post 18 movements between sort of education, employment and, and training pathways, but also the fact that CAM support tends to end at 18, and then also education and healthcare plans ending at 25. Those are incredibly um, important milestones for um, for certain groups of young people. Um, Through the consultation, we heard about the amazing work that schools, APs, um, one-stop shops like Youth Concern, other settings um, are able to offer. Um, But Part of the problem, particularly that educational settings face, is that they often, yeah, they're filling in gaps that a properly funded youth sector would usually be able to provide. So that means that when people leave education, they too often feel isolated. They don't have multiple contact points. So there might have to be some sort of cutoff, but the management of that transition between services is absolutely essential. (laughs) But I mean, you can try as much as you like to manage a sort of a transition, but there's also a huge capacity issue here. You know, thresholds for support are way too high. Waiting lists for CAMs are extraordinarily long, um, as we know from the national picture. And sometimes that means that by the time young people receive their support, that, you know, they're moving into adult services. So it's interesting to hear what Hannah says about Ali and the importance of like the CAMs counselling, even if the counselling itself sort of could have been better um I spoke with one young person in a youth voice group who felt that she wouldn't be able to get CAM support, so she might as well wait until she was eligible for adult support. And I just think it's absurd that young people have finding the, like themselves in these sorts of positions. Um, but thinking about sort of barks and the findings from our research, so let's think particularly around mental health. So like at the aggregate county level, most recent data available indicates that self-reported mental well-being of 15-year-olds in box is significantly better than the regional and national average. But in 2017, Box Mind evaluated mental health peer support groups across the county, and they found massive gaps in community service provision for young people, particularly um, for those between 18 to 35 which I think seems to chime with uh, a lot of what Hannah's saying about her experience at Youth Concern. Um, Another thing on gaps, um, post-16 providers don't have the funding to check in uh, longer term uh, on the progress and outcomes that young people um, have made as they transition into adulthood. So we spoke to individual teachers who would 
try to go out of their way to support young people once they had left the institutions through various networks. But this isn't a sustainable model, um, given that teachers are already massively stretched. And then finally, uh, schools and, as I said, schools in the wider youth sector are working incredibly hard to support young people. Um, but they also didn't know where to put them in touch with. They didn't know about some of the amazing support that is available in Box. So we do need some better signposting and greater awareness of complementary support to help ensure that any positive impact through early interventions can be sustained going forward. I think Bill is right. I think the we have to acknowledge COVID has played a huge, huge part um, in in the way that young people are feeling today, but also we were all out there banging saucepans with wooden spoons, weren't we, to, to clap for the NHS back in the day. I don't know that teachers, well, I hope they did, but I'm not sure they got the thanks and the gratitude that that we ought to, to, to show them because their jobs were difficult before. And I think, you know, Boris would open his mouth on the, on the news at five o'clock on a Friday night and on Monday morning, suddenly the kids are in or out of school, but the teachers were having to move so fast. And I know that particularly through those the first 12 months of COVID, I was watching the news, half thinking about how it affected my own family, but really thinking, what does this mean for work? Are we able to open? Are we not able to open? What about those appointments we've got? So there is a huge gap in provision. And I think um, acknowledging that all of us are doing more than than we possibly thought we could already and yet there's still so much to be done that you know lines have to be drawn between somebody being a child and being an adult or somebody with special needs perhaps the 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 support's available for longer but that line has to be drawn somewhere and we're living in a country that's got county county lines I was going to say that's something entirely different but there are borders between counties that has to exist and there are postcode borders and if you live in some postcodes you're eligible to sit the 11 plus and go to grammar school, but that doesn't exist in other counties. So all these, I think the gaps in provision, there are so many reasons why why young people can fall foul. They can live in the wrong place. They could live in a family or they could be in care or, or it's location, it's age. It's a really difficult and um, systemic change is needed to, to make sure that there's equitable access for all young people to all the services they need. Yeah, Hannah, you bring up a really um, interesting point about, I guess, kind of the postcode lottery, as some people would call it, in terms of where you are can, in some cases, really affect what services you're able to access. um, And in some unfortunate circumstances, kind of your your, your opportunities later in life. Um, One of the things that I noticed through the research was that there, there seemed to be quite a bit of variation in terms of young people's experiences when it comes to transitions. Hannah, I'd love to know from you why you think this variation exists. Mm, it's a huge question. And I really liked your opening because you did talk about your personal expectation that Buckinghamshire is this leafy green place and, you know, we have no problems here. Youth Concern operates in Buckinghamshire. Bucks is in the home counties. It is a leafy place. We've got more National Trust properties in Buckinghamshire than any other county in the UK. Two of the five most expensive places to live in the whole country are in our county. It is affluent, but that affluence can mask a deprivation and a poverty. So Aylesbury Vale, which is one of the four districts of Bucks, experiences the most deprivation of the four districts. 
we have twice as many violent crimes and sexual assaults and drug crimes as the national average. We've got higher levels of mental health issues reported in the most disadvantaged wards. And that's home to many of the young people who engage with our service. And this was a, a fact that, that we were shocked to discover in our own research at the end of last year. Aylesbury Vale is 22% more young people experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness than the national average. Now, probably that is related to the fact it's an expensive area and young people just can't get on the housing ladder. They can barely afford to rent sometimes. But I think if I had to pick just one answer to sort of explore why there's so much variation, I think rural isolation plays a, a big part. And we talked about this last week, didn't we? Growing up in London, it wasn't something you ever had to think about. You can get to places physically, um, but public transport just isn't reliable for young people who live in the villages and the market towns across Aylesbury Vale. At, young, at Youth Concern, we specialise, as I said, in supporting the most vulnerable young people, but the majority of them can't drive, they can't afford a car, and they don't have a parent or a carer who can give them a lift. They are the young people we really want to support, so they rely on public transport. But buses are slow and they're expensive. Some of our young people, when he told Billy, when he came to us for a focus group, they told Billy that they might like to go to Milton Keynes to meet friends, go shopping on a Saturday, but the bus costs 11 quid for a student return. It ran once an hour and it didn't run at all on Sundays. So if they're working on a Saturday or they don't want to spend 11 quid on travelling before they even get to the shops, you know, it's a no-go. So they said in that focus group they travelled less than they would otherwise and some young people struggle to access support outside their immediate community. Yeah, as you said, Hannah, this was something that kind of, as a Londoner, that for, for a long time didn't really explore much of the UK out of, outside of London. I was extremely shocked by kind of how rural certain areas can be. Um, some of my colleagues listening might laugh at this, but I've been exploring some of some of the UK, um, been going to the most random places you can imagine. But yeah, I was surprised by how isolated you can be if you don't have a car. Um, and I can't even imagine as a young person what that would mean if you're, you're trying to go to school or access a youth club or, as you said, just try to meet your friends. Um, and you're talking about a bus fare for, for £11. I mean, that's unimaginable to me. Um, but I can, I can only imagine what impact that has, particularly for, for poorer families where there may not be a, a car in the family where... They may be, you know, you've got parents working, both parents working maybe a lot of hours. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that I think a lot of us uh, maybe in inner cities probably take for granted when it comes to transport. But it is such a, a key part of being able to, you know, get out into society and enjoy what's around you. Um, Billy, I would love to hear from you kind of from a research perspective, what why you think there is so much variation um, in terms of the support available to young people in Bucks? So as Hannah said, you know, Bucks is sort of perceived affluence can mask deprivation and poverty. And part of the problem from a research perspective here is that we often rely on measures like the index of multiple deprivation, which while they are useful, often leave those in more affluent counties out because while there are significant pockets of deprivation and people might struggle to access certain services, they aren't among the most deprived at the national level. So a way around this might be to think about social infrastructure. So thinking about young people's access to civic assets, so like libraries or community centres, connectedness, so quality of public transports um, 
a massive one there. And then also things like sort of community engagement, um, you know, third sector activity. I mean, we could talk a, uh, an awful lot about this. There's so much to say. Um, but one thing I'd, I'd, I'd point out is that according to the 2011 um, area classification for local authorities, six to eight percent of neighborhoods in Bucks are described as hard pressed, which are the area type associated with the poorest youth outcomes in existing research. So um, and, and, and if you look at our mapping, which you can find online and it's really interesting, um, these sort of hard-pressed neighbourhoods, they're not simply located in more urban or deprived parts of Bucks, but they're spread out. They're often on the outskirts of conurbations rather than in their centres. Um, they're also located in numerous smaller towns and villages in the county. So you've got that sort of rural dimension as well that um, that Hannah flags. Um, just on the transport thing, I just think it's so important to emphasise this because it, it, it was such an sort of overwhelming piece of feedback that we got from young people and those that supported them, that the public transport infrastructure in Box is just not currently fit for purpose at all. Um, and, I can, and, and that has uh, also exacerbated existing forms of, of marginalisation that certain groups of young people face. So, for instance, young carers having to take uh, whole days off school um, to be able to take themselves to medical appointments because they don't have a car or their parents aren't able to help them with their with their travel. Obviously, they're missing out on education there. That's you know, exacerbating a, a form of marginalisation that they, they face. But it's also not just about this lack of transport infrastructure. It's also the challenges young people face being able to navigate the public transport. So um, I remember going to a specialist um, send uh, provider and I was speaking to lots of young people who find it hard to respond to timetabling changes, uh, which they weren't informed about. And members of staff uh, working in public transport weren't able to sort of help them navigate their public transport. Again, that meant they were missing um, vital educational opportunities, but also the kind of broader services that the youth sector can provide as well. Um, so in terms of the recommendations here, obviously, there's a long term question about improving public travel infrastructure in Bucks. But for youth organisations and young people, there's a, also a more immediate need for supported travel to and from interventions. You know, if the government may say that they're serious about levelling up and I'm sure that's something we might touch on later. But, you know, the, the transport infrastructure is not going to change in Bucks overnight. So in the meantime, um, potential sort of grant applicants, voluntary and community sector organisations and others need to think how they're going to support private travel potentially um, for the young people that they're looking to provide for. Yeah, that's a really good point that you make. Um, it's all fair and good to kind of have these fantastic services available, these fantastic programmes that people want to provide for young people. But if young people aren't literally able to to make it to it, um, it it kind of becomes redundant. So really thinking about what as organizations you can do to kind of ensure that people are physically able to access what you're offering is it sounds like a really kind of good solution while while we wait for the transportation system to improve across the UK. Um, one of the other things the research mentioned was that young people in Buckinghamshire um, struggle to access high quality work experience. Um, obviously at CFE, why that's something we're quite interested in in terms of looking at what work experience means when it is high quality and also providing work experience. 
Hannah, I would love to know from you what you think employers in the area can do to ensure young people, particularly those from disadvantaged backgrounds, have access to high quality work experience. I was really glad this was picked up as part of the CFEY research. Work is a, re- it's a very real concern for young people. Uh, we run an annual survey. We ask young people what they think about various issues. And 297 young people from across Aylesbury Vale told us exactly what they thought last year. And the third biggest area of concern for them was employment or or unemployment being made redundant, especially since so many of them work in the gig economy and retail. Not surprising considering the effect COVID had on, on young working people. We know that a third of 18 to 24 year olds were furloughed or they lost their job in 2020. We know that young people from poor households were more likely to lose work. And we also know that young people of colour were more than twice as likely to not be working during lockdown as their white peers. There's something very inequitable about that. So what, what should employers do? I think employers should offer meaningful and appropriate forms of work experience. They should recognise the skills that SEND young people can bring. They should actively welcome people who are underrepresented in the labour market, like disadvantaged candidates from marginalised communities. And I speak personally and professionally there because two of my nephews are autistic and they are amazing young men. And I worry for their future because they may be disregarded and yet they have so much to offer. But then it's not all doom and gloom. There are some brilliant industry leading employers The one that springs to mind for me is Timpson, the high street shoe repairer and key cutter. They're one of the largest employers in the UK of ex-offenders. So about 10% of Timpson's workforce are people with criminal convictions. And I think there's something really lovely that they work with people who are serving time to teach them to cut keys. But that might just be me and the cartoon that's running through my head. But the company believes in giving people a second chance. They believe that People shouldn't be judged on what they've done on the, in the past, that instead they focus on what they could do in the future. That's definitely our approach as an employer at Youth Concern. We are proud to have people with what we call lived experience on our staff team because they have got the biggest heart for young people. They want to go back and support the young people that they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But also I think... Because not all young people are work ready, we need organisations that help young people into voluntary roles or part-time work. So it might include assistance with CV writing, um, application form filling, that can be quite daunting, and interview experience. There are obvious things to say, but you know, a young person turning up to volunteer at the charity shop is having to dress appropriately, be on time and show respect to somebody in authority. And that can be quite a challenge for, for non-work ready young people. So at Youth Concern, one of the really powerful partnerships we have is with Advisor, who are a charity themselves that inspires and supports young people to progress in learning and in work. So they come into our drop-in centre Um, And they work with individual young people or they do sessions talking about any of those barriers and how we overcome them. Increasingly, and I'm just loving this, companies are getting in touch with us at Youth Concern to ask from our experience and, and 
we are we are speaking the voice of the young people what these companies can do to remove the barriers that might unknowingly exist that are preventing young people from working it's really exciting to be having those conversations and i think this there is this movement for change people are recognizing and i talked about recruitment being a challenge earlier if it's hard to recruit then how brilliant people are looking to get out of that box and find new ways to recruit new kinds of people yeah, as you said, COVID has had such an impact when it comes to people having security in their work, being able to access work experience. Um, work experience is something that I'm super passionate about. I think people can get stuck in this loop where it's like they don't have work experience to get the job, um, and then but then to get the job, they need the work experience. And they're, they're stuck in this weird cycle where you can't really break into something. Um, so I think working experience is incredibly important just to kind of give people that leg up, particularly those from kind of backgrounds that maybe aren't represented in certain fields. Um, I also like the point that you made about lived experience. Um, I, I'm someone that really values kind of the importance of lived experience. Um, and I think, to be honest, as an organization, CFEY, we're quite keen to kind of have people working with us that have some sort of experience of either the issues that we're talking about or have worked with young people. Because um, I think sometimes certain sectors can be almost too rigid about kind of the experiences that they're looking for. But I think, you know, people are experts of their own experiences. And I think people's life experience has a lot to contribute to the world of work, um, particularly, you know, young people that maybe haven't had the easiest time when it comes to their education or their personal circumstances. They often come with a, a different level of kind of resilience and grit and understanding and care for people, as you said. Um, and it's a shame that some some employers aren't maybe giving them a chance um, that they probably deserve. Billy, I know this is um, something that you looked at in the research in terms of the work experience. I'd love to know from you what you think what you think work experience would look like, or high quality work experience, I should say, would look like for these young people, and what you think employers and organisations that are trying to support young people can do to kind of facilitate this process of young people obtaining this work experience. Yeah, I agree with a, a lot that's been said, um, and CFEY has obviously done a lot of work uh, in this area, including our sort of more than a job's worth report and other work that has looked at providing age-appropriate um, work experience. Obviously, in light of COVID, it's been very difficult. While there have been some online work experiences, and I know this touches on sort of another um, issue, but you know, it, it's only available to those who have an appropriate device that have stable internet connection, um, and inbox uh, digital black spots is a massive issue as well. So that's something that um, would-be employers would need to consider too. Um, I really like what Hannah was saying about Timpson. I think, I mean, we spend a lot of time rightfully um, talking about careers, information, advice and guidance and the Gatsby, Gatsby benchmarks and the like sort of school's role in improving young people's labour market outcomes. But help also needs to come from employers uh, they need to be proactive in this area. Um, so I'm pleased that there is a sort of movement for change that Hannah describes um, to sort of diversify the pool of um, the workforce. Uh, I think one thing, again, turning back to the specialist providers that we spoke to, um, particularly those supporting young people with special educational needs and disabilities, um, we found that those in sort of alternative provision settings were often left out of employers' outreach uh, work that they would go th through mainstream providers like schools and colleges.
but they would often miss certain groups of young people. And that might be through a kind of lack of awareness of these uh, alternative provision providers. But it also might be some form of sort of indirect discrimination where they worry that they're not able to cater to young people from different backgrounds. Um, that's where these uh, alternative provision providers can be really useful conveners. They can draw on their professional expertise to give advice to would-be employers. But employers themselves will also need to sort of step up and make sure that they are getting out there and speaking to a wide range of young people with a wide range of lived experience and expertise that you describe. The final thing I would add also is that it's not just about getting work and getting work experience, it's also about in-work support. So retention needs to be improved, particularly for those that might not have adults in similar professions that they can seek advice from. Um, so thinking about, okay, once young people have got work experience, what support is available to them to make sure that they're getting on okay at work, that they're going to stay at work and that they're going to thrive and gain some really valuable experience. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think sometimes we just kind of expect young people to be able to just automatically adjust to workplaces. But I do think there's a completely kind of different etiquette that you have within workplaces. There may be, you know, tackling things that they, they might not have done before, for example. I mean, it sounds silly, but some people may not have written professional emails before. They may not know what you wear to a meeting with a client. Um, they may not know that, you know, for some meetings, you may shake people's hands, for example. I think there's a lot sometimes that we take for granted because we know it now. Um, and as you said, Hannah, kind of CVs and personal statements, that kind of thing. I think, as I said, we we take it for granted and we just assume it's one of those things that people just automatically know know how to do. But I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of value in supporting young people and ensuring that they do actually have these skills when they're coming into the workplace so they're not I mean, in some ways, almost being set up to fail because they haven't been given the school, the, the skills and the tools, I said schools, skills and the tools um, to thrive in the world of work. Um, I'm going to interrupt at that point because I'm multitasking. I think it's what CEOs do. I was just checking what was going on in email because I'm seeing a flurry come in. And one of my contacts who, she's brilliant, but I better not name her, but she runs the Prince's Trust in Aylesbury. She's one of our partners and there's a lot of support. There's a lot of synergy between what she does with vulnerable young people and, and them coming to the, the drop-in centre. But she's literally just done a call out that she's got a group of particularly shy young people who face barriers to work and they need to find a work experience place, but they need employers who are going to be aware of the 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 things that have gone on in their past, they need that support while they're doing that volunteering. So I was so glad that Billy picked up just now that it's not just about getting that, getting your foot through the door, it's it's sustaining that um, employment or that volunteering opportunity and, and realising that some people are going to need a bit more of a helping hand than others. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as well, it's important to say that these young people are worth helping. I think sometimes people are maybe worried by the idea that, you know, that people need extra support, but I think, you know, I mean, first of all, it it contribute it can contribute significantly to, you know, that young person's life um opportunities, et cetera. And I do think, you know, as organizations, we we benefit from having, you know, differences in lived um in terms of experiences, et cetera. So I think it's definitely worth putting the work in, even if it it may feel as though it can be quite difficult or a long process. Um 
As we're coming up to kind of the end of the podcast, one thing I'm quite keen to think about, and I'd imagine may still be on quite a few people's minds, is um, the levelling up white paper, which came out not too long ago. Um, And as many of you may know, it kind of has 12 missions across four different areas. So that's improving productivity, um, increasing living standards, spreading opportunities, and also restoring a sense of community and empowering local leaders. Billy, with the research in mind, what do you hope the levelling up agenda means for young people in Buckinghamshire? Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, um, particularly as we've been commissioned by one of the government's opportunity areas to carry out an evaluation of what is or was meant to be a piece of place-based policymaking. Uh, And then more recently, obviously, through the uh, levelling up white paper, we've got the government's investment in education investment areas, uh, which I have views on. Uh, and uh, but yeah, for, I mean, in terms of bucks, uh, for me, I think leveling up has to mean a few things. Um, first, has to be transport infrastructure. It's not necessarily the most inspiring recommendation, but I think it would make so much difference in helping marginalised young people uh, across the county access the amazing support that is available, um, but that they can't uh, currently access. That's a, that's a huge thing. They're amazing organisations. Um, doing brilliant work. And it's, yeah, it's just tragic that so many young people aren't able to access those opportunities. Um, I also think that there's a sort of civic role for the University of Buckingham and Bucks New Uni to take on. So could look at what's going on in uh, Greater Manchester um, as a sort of model for that type of activity. Um, These institutions, yeah, they should be working collaboratively to drive growth and opportunities uh, in Bucks. And there are organizations and networks like Bucks Business First, which are doing this um, in Bucks already. So you could build on that sort of in existing infrastructure. I feel like there's certainly an appetite for more activity um, in this area. And then finally, I'd say that we have to hear young people's voices at the not just the county, but at the like the neighborhood level. So the Children's Commissioner's big ask go, um, is a great example of engaging youth voice at the national level. Um, But I think there's more to be done in terms of consulting young people. As you say, it chimes with what you were saying, both of you about lived experience and hearing from those who are actually accessing services, users of these services, um, people who are attending these schools, having these experiences um, and and letting them have some role in the policy um, conversation. So for, for us, even in our, in our research, one of the most valuable steps was taking our recommendations back to young people and youth facing professionals to corroborate, challenge and adjust our recommendations. I think our research report is stronger as a result. And I think if you applied a similar model of youth voice to the policy discussion, you'd get better policy outcomes too for the young people of Bucks. Yeah, I completely agree. I done. I was doing research last week um, for another organisation looking at kind of young people's views of exams and assessments, a slightly different topic. But some of the, the ideas that the young people came out with were honestly incredible. Um, I think young people are very tuned in and very aware of what's happening around them, the change that they want to see in society um, and what, what kind of principles and values um, they have and what they hold dear. And I think it's really important to kind of have people, as um, as you said, Billy, have young people more involved in these conversations. Um, I think it will really enrich the recommendations that are coming out of research and really ensure that the people that we're trying to help are at the centre of these recommendations rather than us kind of writing stuff from, I I guess, in some ways, almost our ivory tower. 
one uh, particular conversation that really will live long in the memory for me was one that I had with a group of young carers. And it was a very small discussion that we had in a sort of makeshift shed outside of school, which is where they met. And they, it was a, it was a very unlikely location for a research consultation conversation, but it was one of the most useful and interesting I've had. And they were so delighted to have their voices heard and goodness knows they had an awful lot to say and were absolutely furious at um, the lack of, yes, travel infrastructure available um, to them, the difficulties that they had accessing youth services given their own responsibilities, um, the lack of recognition that was given to what they were juggling. I just think if you got any of those young carers into a room with a policymaker, it could with the right policymaker, uh, really, really make a difference and shift the dial when it comes to youth provision in box. Yeah, absolutely. I think these things have a different weight when they come from the people that they impact themselves. And I think young people are often super keen to kind of contribute their opinions and their thoughts, but they're just not given enough space to do so. And I think that, yeah, that's something that's definitely really important when we're thinking about creating policies that impact them. I can't remember who it was I was having a conversation with, but they mentioned that, you know, during COVID, young people weren't consulted um, at any point. So I think they had various consultations when they were doing, um, implementing different policies, et cetera. And young people weren't consulted at all. I think it was something to do with, I think you had to be over 16 or something. I'm probably butchering the point. Um, But I remember them saying, you know, young people were really upset. They felt like a lot of decisions were being made about them, for them, without kind of consulting them. And it really dawned on me you know what it it really is important that young people feel as though their voices are heard nobody wants to feel like decisions are being made for them and they kind of have no autonomy over what their lives are going to look like um, and the decisions that are being made that impact them Hannah as someone that's working with young people particularly in in Bucks on a day-to-day basis I'd love to know from you what you think the leveling up or what you would hope the leveling up agenda means for the young people that you're working with Uh, yeah I I would like to answer that but I couldn't agree with what you said more just now that I don't want my politics to get in the way, but I think if we look at the government, they might be driving an EDI agenda for all of us and little charities needing to do more and and companies needing to do more. And we absolutely all do, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of representation in the cabinet. And I think about the educational levels that they've achieved and, and so much of this and I see it on a daily basis, it's down to the cards you're dealt at birth, your start, or in fact, while you're in utero, we're working with um, young, well, with pregnant women now, because our charity's been around for 43 years, where some of my longer standing members of staff have worked with their mums in the past. You know, that there's that cyclical, um, that generational cycle of poverty. And so I think I don't like the term levelling up. It it really smacks of us and them. And I I don't see a whole lot of consultation with young people or with people from disadvantaged wards or poorer areas or whatever. However, we're boxing those people. There's definitely a them and us agenda when we talk about levelling up. But getting back to the question, you asked me, what investments or opportunities we might see in Buckinghamshire, hopefully, as a result of this paper. Um, The headlines included, the two that really jumped out to me, there's a a promised £3.8 billion investment in skills, including an adult numeracy programme and a skills boot camp, and a lower universal credit taper rate, so down from 63% to 55%, and a higher, higher national living wage, in theory, making work pay 
I'm a bit concerned that much of that funding appears to be focused on city regions and the areas outside city regions like Aylesbury Vale. And Aylesbury is a big town, but we're certainly not a city. We might remain stuck in that levelling up slow lane. And I don't like the word, the expression levelling up. But it feels, it feels very them and us. It feels focused on what has been decided upon in the, the ivory towers rather than seeing any consultation with people coming out into the, the villages. I think about HS2, which is a really big issue in Buckinghamshire, you know, for saving the, I don't know, I should have checked this out before I started talking, but the half hour, I think, that is reputed that will be saved between Euston and Birmingham it's not stopping en route as far as I'm aware. So it's chundering through all those little villages, house property, um, the, sorry, market value of the properties has gone down and, and maybe fair enough in some, that, that might be helpful to some of our young people because property is really expensive in Bucks. But it just feels like a little bit of a, a metaphor for, again, focusing on city regions. Let's get people from Brum down to London. Let's not worry about the smaller villages and the poorer regions that we're literally laying tracks through at the minute. And again, that was something that came out of a, it was a discussion with uh, some young people in a youth voice group. And they asked specifically whether they could, um, they could talk about HS2 and it's, uh, <laughs> their, their views on it and, and, and they said exactly what you said Hannah that it, you know, it's not stopping through it, 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 they can't see the benefit of it and they find it kind of infuriating and a bit of a smack in the face that it's going through their communities meanwhile it takes them several hours and multiple buses to get somewhere um, you know to get into the centre of town they find it infuriating yeah it must be incredibly infuriating it's, you know it seems as though people are being impacted quite negatively by something that, as you said, isn't going to benefit them in any way. And it's just making two big cities pretty much closer to one another. Um, I can see why people would be incredibly frustrated by that. At a time, of course, that, and I know the work on HS2 started before COVID, but at a time, of course, that we've all realised that so many of our jobs can be done from home. So it's the opposite of levelling up. It's it's. In- and, but then we have a conservative government. It is supporting the haves, not the have-nots, the people who are struggling to get into work. A high-speed train going through their backyard is not going to help them get into work. There have been some really great examples locally, I mustn't be too negative, of the construction industry, for example, who have taken on more young people to, to work with them. And that wouldn't have happened if the new jobs hadn't been created by the construction of the railway. So I've been talking to some of the construction firms who've done that, and there's some ad- admiral, admirable work going on. I won't use that word again. But I, mean, I think generally, the headlines are exciting, some of them in the levelling up paper, I just wait to see what's actually delivered. And by the time that money is shared out across the country, how much of it actually gets down to Buckinghamshire? Yeah, I think a lot of us are probably on the the edge of our seats just waiting to see what the the leveling up agenda means kind of in practical terms i think you know when you look at the amounts of money it looks big and flashy but it'll be really interesting to see you know what that means for people on a local level and particularly for people in areas that are more rural rather than kind of big cities um that probably already have a lot of resources plundered into them Hannah, Billy, that actually brings me to the end of my questions um i'm just gonna give you guys a space just in case there's anything 
you'd like to say that you haven't had a chance to um, or any points that you'd just like to, to make before we wrap up? I think I would just like to say thank you so much for inviting me on to represent the voice of vulnerable young people. I do think we're at a turning point for the youth sector and for vulnerable young people. And there is so much attention and funding being offered for the right projects that are wanting to work collaboratively, that are wanting to deliver tangible differences uh, in Buckinghamshire. And I think, I mean, even just having the, the subject of this podcast and, and we're going to share the heck out of it so that our voices are heard because too often uh, young people's voices aren't heard. So, yeah, just thank you from Youth Concern and from me. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I've really enjoyed getting to hear more about the work that you do um, in Buckinghamshire. And as I said before, I loved going on your website and just getting, you know, a real sense of the support that you're providing to young people. And Billy, I'm sure you feel the same, but I feel like when, whenever I get to, you know, speak to people that are working on the field, it really makes the work that we're doing at CFEY feel, you know, more practical or more useful. Um, and it feels like a nice kind of full circle moment to see, you know, what work is going on and yeah, what our, what our research is contributing to in the long term. So thank you so much for joining us. Billy, I don't know if you have anything to add before we leave. Just to say, it's been a pleasure having this conversation and we've spoken a lot about working from home and what that might look like. What has, what part of what made the box work so interesting, fascinating, and the points really refreshing for me was being able to get back out into the field post COVID because there really is no substitute for seeing expert uh, practitioners at work, people who are working incredibly hard to support young people, whether that be in, in schools, alternative provision, or one-stop shops like Youth Concern. Um, I just think if we're going to talk about place-based policymaking, uh, policymakers, researchers need to get out to these places and speak to the young people and youth facing practitioners who are really on the kind of sharp end of these policies. Um, I, th I think it's incredibly important. But yes, thanks very much for the discussion. So thank you both so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our discussion and I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Youth Concern, you can visit their website at www.youthconcern.org.uk or on their Twitter at youthconcern. You can also find out more about the research or read the report at www.cfey.org. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you are listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.